There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Those are verses 8 through 13 of Psalm 86, which along with Psalm 85 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, May the 14th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. I appreciate you being with me today. We're looking at uh, lessons from Ezekiel, from Hebrews, and from Luke today. So we are one day past the ascension, and so we're looking at the supremacy of Christ in, in these lessons today. And we begin with the Ezekiel lesson. And so if you remember from yesterday, he has been taken up into heaven, and he's before the throne, and he's heard a voice speaking from above the throne. And all of heaven has gone quiet while this voice is speaking. And so it talks about the brightness of the appearance uh, all around. And it was the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And the voice said, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke with me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels, who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, they'll know that a prophet's been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed by their looks, for their rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. It's a painful thing for God to send Ezekiel to these people and with this message. And it, But when a prophet comes, very rarely does a prophet come just to exhort, let's say, or pat people on the back and tell them what a great job they're doing. And so it, God is not surprised <laughs> at the reception that's received by the prophets. And it's the same reception that will be given to his son. And, and it goes back to the parables that Jesus told of the man who planted a vineyard and, and then put a, built a wall around it and got everything exactly right and then hired it or lent it out to tenants who farmed the property and then refused. When the servants came to collect the rent, they refused to pay it. And ultimately he sent his son and they killed him. And so Jesus was well aware from the beginning. God has lots of experience, let's say, with dealing with rebellious people. Now, the thing to remember here is is that we can pick on Israel all we want for being a rebellious house, but the reality is is they were the ones who accepted the covenant. And so of all the nations on earth, God went into covenant with them, and that covenant has lasted to this day. And so we see here this this rebellious house. The purpose of sending to uh, the prophets to a rebellious house is is very simple. It's because the covenant that God made with them is everlasting, and so so He is going to send someone to try and warn them because of His love for them. He's going to try and get a message to them that will cause them to repent. But He knows perfectly well that they're not going to do that. 
that they have gone apostate, they have gone so far from God that they're no longer able to hear correction. And so he says, don't worry about that. Don't worry whether they're angry with you or whatever. He's protecting the prophet because he has a message to give to his people. And so he tells Ezekiel, don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And so he looks and he sees a scroll with a hand stretching out, holding a scroll with it was written on both sides. And and they were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what you find there. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Because of the words of the Lord. But the problem is that that ultimately it's going to turn his stomach. And he's going to have the same sense towards the people that God does because he has has been immersed in them. Now he's taken up to heaven, but he's going to be given this word, and then he's got to go back and give it to the people of Israel, this rebellious house. And, and sometimes it can indeed be very difficult to give a word like that because we get so caught up in the world and the way that it is, even in the church, which can get corrupted as well. And, and then it becomes a difficult word to speak because nobody wants to hear it. They believe that you are the problem. And God's word is the one controlling factor. And so it, it's sweet when we taste it, but frequently when we digest it, when we understand the meaning for us, frequently the, the taste is far less sweet than it was when we ate it. And so it will be with, with Ezekiel. But sometimes a prophet even has to be taken out of his environment and put into a new environment in order that he can then see the problem. Because we get so immersed in things that we become inured to the things that, that are not right because we're so accustomed to them. And it's the old frog in the kettle thing, uh, that you put a frog in a, in a kettle of warm water and it feels good. And then you turn the heat up and you turn the heat up and you turn the heat up and suddenly it's boiling. And now the frog's going to die, but but you got him accustomed to it a little bit at a time so that he didn't hop out of the kettle until he was well and truly done. And so that can be the case with us as well within the church. And the church can get corrupted, easily corrupted, actually. And so when Jesus is taken, he takes Peter, James, and John up, and they go to the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, it's not the name of it. That's just what happens when they when they get there. We don't know specifically which mountain it was. We just know it was a high mountain. And so he takes those three up there onto the mountain, and and Jesus is there praying. Because remember, he goes to desolate places frequently to pray. And so he goes up there, just the four of them are there. And suddenly, while he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And what does it mean by that? And then it goes on to say his clothing became dazzling white. And the, the appearance of his face being altered and the clothes being dazzling white... Um, we believe goes back to the shining face of Moses. So whenever Moses was with God, the, the way that I've always tried to make sense of it is to say that he got a God tan from being with God. The glory of God basically changed Moses's appearance. Here on the mountain, though, the, the, Jesus's appearance and his clothing are transfigured in this moment. But they're not transfigured from without, 
they're transfigured from within. If Moses' shining face was similar to the moon, which gets all its light by reflecting the sun, Jesus, the veil of his earthly body is is essentially hiding that glory until this point where now he's he is coming before the Father in prayer and and now that that shading or hiding of the of the glory is gone and all that glory comes from within and transfigures everything on its on its way and so they see the the disciples are asleep and they wake and they see Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus and what are they talking about it says they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem so they're talking about what's going to come next they're going to they're talking about Jesus's departure from this earth so they're probably talking also about the crucifixion the resurrection the ascension all of these things and as I said recently in a sermon that these are two men who could have been the deliverers of Israel but both sinned and fell short of the glory of God Moses uh, by striking the rock when he was told to only speak to the rock he strikes the rock and says must we blah 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 so the problem is is the must we God did the work but when he struck the rock it it, it got some of God's glory and took it from God and and now Moses is taking some sort of credit for it it was from his anger that he was feeling and Elijah his sin was that because of his anger and because of his fear he left his post he abandoned his position as the prophet of Israel the one who was the in the vanguard speaking for the Lord against the people of Israel calling them to repent of the apostasy from that was brought in by Ahab and Jezebel and the worship of the gods of Jezebel and her family. And so Elijah, after he defeats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, then Jezebel announces that she'll make sure that Elijah doesn't exit well, essentially, that she's going to kill him. And so Elijah says, I'm done. I've had it with this. I'm out of here. And he leaves his servant behind, and then he goes into the wilderness and has his little uh, pouting episodes, and God decommissions him as the prophet, sends him back to say, "You go and anoint Elijah to take your place. You go announce. You go anoint that one to become the commander of the army, and that one to become the king. But you're done, Elijah. Your your career as the prophet of Israel is done. He's not going to be the one who is able to lead those people into." Well, out of repentance and back into the good graces of the Lord. And so they, these two guys didn't finish well. And so I believe that they're there partially in order to encourage Jesus in this last bit, this last leg of the journey. Uh, they need him to be their Savior. So they're there speaking with him. And Peter, though, says, wakes and immediately says, Master, it's good we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And, and then a cloud comes and overshadows them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. It, let's not get this mixed up, fellas. Jesus is not like those other two. He is the chosen one. He is the Son of God. He is the one who will complete the mission of deliverance and salvation and bring eternal life in a way these two men were incapable of doing because of their own personal failures. 
So they get a clue here, a little bit at least, that Jesus is something more than them. So Peter has just confessed Jesus to be exactly this, the chosen one, but he's tempted here to put them all together and lump them into one. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And, and the, the question is, is that do you understand that Jesus is greater than these? And the voice certainly makes that clear when, it, when he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. These other two were the ones that everybody was listening to and looking for. They, were, they listened to Moses in the sense of the Torah that he wrote and the, the, the law. And then Elijah represents the prophets, the ones who were listened to as well, prophets like Ezekiel. And, but they're all speaking to rebellious people, and then their anger over the rebellion of the people is what disqualified these other two. And so Jesus here is transfigured because now he is different from these other two. As well he should be, and, and we have to make sure that we don't have any rivals for Jesus in our lives. That could be a, a favorite teacher, a favorite preacher, or whatever. And I've certainly seen people get carried away with these things. And they, I had a guy who used to come to me in the gym all the time for a while, and he would come to me and he'd say, John, what's the Lord had to say to you today? And I would tell him, and then he would tell me what some other preacher had said. And I finally asked him, Marshall, does the Lord ever speak to you directly? Do you ever hear from the Lord? without hearing it through an intermediary. Are you in the Word for yourself? Because when we're in the Word, God speaks to us through the reading of the Word. And so it's important that we not have substitutes, that we not have intermediaries. And so in this Hebrews passage, that the, the primacy of Jesus is being upheld here. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then he goes on to talk about the, the high priests who had come before Jesus. And, and all those high priests, they say that they're appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, but he can and he can deal he the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then but the point of the argument here within Hebrews is to say he's, he, he is like us in every respect. He was a man. He was subject to temptation, but he never sinned under temptation. Unlike high priests who have gone before him, we have a different high priest. This, the, the argument of Hebrews is essentially an argument directed towards a group of people who seem to have accepted Jesus. But because of the delay in the coming again, they have hedged their bets, and they've gone back a little bit into Judaism. And so what he's saying, what the author of Hebrews is saying, the argument is to pull them away, pull them back from that, and point them only to Jesus. And to say, you don't need that high priest, because that high priest is as fallible as you are. Not that he's done anything wrong, because he was appointed by God, but you need this other high priest, Jesus, who is a better high priest, because he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He offered his sacrifice for your sin. 
So while the priests might be able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness, Jesus deals with, with us even more gently by offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And so the argument is you don't need a high priest who's going to offer sacrifices for your sins. You have the high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And because our high priest has passed through the heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have everything we need in Jesus. And what the argument is to say is, is that if you're grabbing those other things as well, then you're making a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus. You don't need anything more, because anything more is less. Let's always remember that he is the source of life. Not a preacher, not a pastor, not a teacher, nobody. Nobody but Jesus. He is all we need.